0: frother to quickly whip up your healthy and nutritious grown american drink go to grown Superfood.com forward slash john and order today
1: that's not just the sound of that first sip of morning joe it's the sound of someone shopping for a car on carvana from the comfort of home that's a good blend it's time to take it easy like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes talk
2: about starting the morning
1: right just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah.
0: This is the John Fuglesang Podcast. It's very daunting to do an introduction for you. I have to, you know, from Kronos to Blade 2. Um, one of the most underrated films of the last 30 I years. Like that, yeah. Blade, what a special movie. What a political movie. Yes. Pan's Labyrinth. I could talk about Shape of Water, uh, Nightmare Alley, and perhaps that resume will prepare you for the beauty, the terror, the cinema of splendor that is Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio, mm-hmm. the stop motion animated musical, which is directed by Mr. del Toro and Mark Gustafson, who uh, y'all will love from Fantastic Mr. Fox, yeah. uh, from a screenplay by Mr. del Toro and Patrick McHale. Now, there have been many films made of the wooden board this one takes place in 1930s fascist italy featuring the voices of ewan mcgregor john turturro our good friend ron perlman uh, and Kate blanchett as a monkey it is an animated yes. masterpiece that does not sanitize life's pain nor does it trivialize life's joys mm-hmm. guillermo del toro what a great honor and pleasure to welcome you oh, my pleasure you. to be here thank you so much um the film's remarkable and i i've read you, you said that no single character in history has had as deep of a personal connection to me as Pinocchio.
3: Yeah, because my mother is part of that. My mother and I saw that it was my second or third movie with her ever. Yeah. And uh and I felt uh, you know, we would go in Matt on Martinez when Disney re released the films every seven years from The Vault. We saw Pinocchio then and it, it was uh A revelation for me, because it's the first time I thought, oh, that's how scary childhood feels for me. Yes. You know, and and Disney, uh, he's very misunderstood. People say, oh, Disney fight. Well, Disney had a lot of darkness. Uh, Quentin Tarantino said the other day in San Francisco, he said, the most scary violent movie I've ever seen in my life is Bambi. Yeah. Which is true. Snow White. Horrifying. uh, Horrifying. And and Bambi is the only movie I had to leave the theater. Really? Yeah. As a a kid, I left screaming. Now raising a child and watching his films again,
0: it makes me respect all the more how Disney didn't want to pussyfoot around the horror of of childhood.
3: No, he. I mean, I I hold Disney as one of the great artists uh, in the film medium of all times. And I think he uh, carried with him, he survived the depression. He was raised in a very, very tense atmosphere at home with a very domineering father, and so forth. And all of that is in his movies. And and, and there's no way to permeate that uh, without pain. The the mad, you know. Chaplin says, if you want to make them cry, make them laugh. Yeah. And if you want to elate them with beauty, you have to show the darkness. It's the same principle, I think. The that is a di- dichotomy. That how can you paint a portrait without shadows? You can't. Mm-hmm. So I think that uh, part think of children the children see through it. Hmm? Children see through it. Yes. By, by the way, the, the children have the most acute lie detector in the history of mankind. And they can tell when something is bullshit, and they can tell when something is real immediately. Yeah.
0: It's one of the most beautiful films you've made, and one of the darkest films you've made. Was mm-hmm. it always your vision to do it... Via stop motion animation.
3: Yes, always, because I think the the movie is, in my opinion, uh, just uh, when you do something in miniature, when you when you do something with a puppet, you, the, the beauty is a, inter, an interpretation yes. of, of reality is beyond reality. When a puppet emotes and or puppets act uh, very much in a naturalistic way. We don't do the, the frantic, sitcom acting of animation. We, our, our characters are real actors, uh, producing real moments of emotion and pain and love. And as a result, for me, it actually is a very luminous movie. And a very, uh, um, you know, in the, in the concept of uh, Catholic grace, mm. is a movie that has a lot of grace.
0: It's all about grace. Yeah. But in unexpected sources. Yes. Grace from... An
3: alcoholic Geppetto, yes. grace from a fascist child. Yeah, well, a child that is that that, that is that was very important. You have the antagonist, the bully uh, character yeah. that you, you that can listen. And his father can't that's right and the whole movie is constructed with the pairing of fathers and sons including Jesus in the first and his scene. Father. yeah we
0: see in the very first scene there's a crucifix on the wall yes
3: yeah it, it is important to me to, to, to say look there are uh, uh, Pinocchio doesn't change in this movie Pinocchio changes everyone Pinocchio doesn't learn to be a real boy Geppetto learns to be a real father exactly you know, and that's the real lesson
0: in life. I want to talk to you about fathers and fascism, but yeah. first I want to talk to you about Frankenstein. Yes. Because it's I know... It's Pinocchio. Yeah, I mean, well, but but at the same time, I wanted to ask you about that, because let me quote you again. You've, you've said your Frankenstein fetish is a, to a degree that is unhealthy, the most important book of my life. Yeah. And there are so many parallels watching this, knowing your love of James Whale's Frankenstein. Yes. But to me, the greatest difference was Frankenstein may be the greatest unwanted child story yeah. and Pinocchio might be the greatest wanted child story, yeah. wished for child story. Yes. And in that sense, I find them to be remarkable companions but so different emotionally.
3: Well, they're both fabrications. Yeah. And and I think that what is interesting about fatherhood is uh, how often a father can fabricate a child that has very little to do with the real child that is in front of him. Yes. You know, and I think... Uh, Frankenstein is born out of uh, hubris. Uh, Pinocchio is uh, born out of pain and loneliness. Very different, and yet they are thrown into the world to figure it out. That's it. Without both. guidance. So yeah. they, they, and they both have this sort of road uh, lesson going through life, meeting charlatans and uh, hunters or aggressors, or, you know, which is what it feels to, uh, to be a kid for me.
0: <laughs> me too. But again, Doctor Frankenstein learns to be repulsed by his
3: creation. Yes,
0: Geppetto learns to love his creation. Yeah, oh, very after different. initially being appalled by
3: it. I think I think when the key moment in the book, with Mary Shelley's book, that that is not dramatized often or at all, is the moment where the monster is now articulate and confronts. The when he creator. learns to read, yes. yeah, and when he talks uh, in a very John Milton way to him about. Why did you do this to me? I mean, the, the, this is, you threw me here uh, without telling me what I was or why I was. It's a very poignant uh, dialogue between creator and, and creature. Kenneth Brana used that dialogue for De Niro, but Karloff
0: seemingly said it all with his eyes.
3: Yeah, oh, well, you know, Karloff, listen, Karloff is, in my opinion, one of the great actors, and, and his eyes were a treasure. Yes. You know, is, uh, I, I have as much of a Karloff fetish as I have a Frankenstein <laughs> fetish. And I, I think that the, the lessons, uh, that you learn from a fable depends on who the singer is. Uh, Frankenstein or Pinocchio are universal. Uh, Pinocchio can represent politics. Pinocchio can represent family. Pinocchio can represent innocence. It can be said in the future, like Astro Boy. It can be said at the right. past, you know, it, it, is, it can be A.I. That's right. the Spielberg movie. It is a very malleable myth. I heard uh, uh, a few weeks ago that there are approximately 65 versions of Pinocchio. Yes, I was looking
0: that up. Yeah. And I, I think Spielberg has referenced it so many, I mean, Close Encounters. Yeah. You know, Pinocchio is a
3: theme throughout the film. When you wish upon a star. Yeah. yeah.
0: I read that you didn't just decide offhand to get into this kind of animation, but you immersed yourself, and in the zeroes, you went to DreamWorks, yeah. and, and you were, I think most people would be surprised that you were a consultant on films like Kung Fu Panda 2.
3: Kung Fu Panda 2, 3, Puss in Woods, yeah. Mind, yeah. What did
0: that experience do for you
3: creatively? Well, I've been doing animation all my life. My super were animation. Yes. I had a company that did, uh, for 10 years, we did makeup effects and stop motion mm-hmm. in Mexico. My first movie was supposed to be stop motion. Uh, before Kronos. Right. And the puppets got destroyed when they burglarized my studio. And then I decided to go back and learn modern uh, animation, so to speak. If you think about it, Pacific Rim has 45 minutes of animation that yes, I directed. That's right. And then I, I not only produced Dreamers but co-directed and created uh, three series, mm-hmm. Tales of Arcadia, Troll Hunters, right. Three Below, and Wizards. Uh, over the course of about uh, eight years. Yes. And I co-directed a few of the episodes, and then I, I finally was ready for Pinocchio.
0: And I remember those series, and what I love the most is how it would not remind anyone of what we've seen yes. in DreamWorks. The, yes. the camera movement in yeah. this film is yeah. so thrilling.
3: Yeah, thank you. We, we, uh, one of the things I, I tried to bring from live action is not only the style of acting, but the style of staging. I said, the camera needs to stage as if uh, the actor was moving, not, not the camera moving and the actor following. And we also very, very pointedly said, let's animate quiet moments. Uh, a father and a son sitting on the pew of a church. So the, the audience leans in to watch every little gesture, mm-hmm. Gebeto rubbing a knuckle yes. after work, uh, Gebeto uh, mopping the sweat out of his brow. You know, uh, little gestures that are throwaway. There's a beautiful moment where Jabeto fights a balloon yes. in an abandoned uh, coliseum that is not done for fun. It's not a gag. It's a throwaway gesture, but it feels completely real. In Tales of Arcadia, in, in uh, Troll Hunters, is where we started doing those things. I started saying, let's make failed acts. If they close the door of the microwave, microwave, let's do it in three tries instead of at the first right. time. When Toby, one of the characters, is putting his socks, let's make the whole sequence about him putting his socks. You know, and, and, and that Miyazaki, Hayao Miyazaki, mm-hmm. the great animator, he said, if you animate the ordinary, it will be extraordinary. And we, we tried to do that. Well, and Hitchcock said li-
0: movies are life with the boring parts taken out. Taken out, yeah. But he, it's zeroing in on these yeah. mundane moments that find the deepest humanity.
3: Yeah, and I think even Hitchcock, when you think about his whole work, and he used to say, People make slices of life, I make slices of cake. Not entirely true. He has movies like I Confess, yeah. which is very, very Catholic, or it movies is. like the, the Wrong Man, mm-hmm. which is basically a crucifixion. And it's almost like a Bresson movie. Mm-hmm. So it's not entirely true. Hitchcock, Hitchcock was a really good promoter.
0: Yeah, he was also capable of, of having real relationships in some of his films. Yes. He was capable of doing it.
3: Yeah, very, very, very much and poignantly. Yeah, You know, I think he's a, a strange humanist. Uh, he and Buñuel, Luis Buñuel, mm-hmm. they remind mm-hmm. me of each other, you know? Yeah. In, in very different ways, but they have commonalities.
0: This might be one of the few films I've seen where I thought the puppet operators contributed as much to the performance as the voice actors. Yeah. A lot of famous names in this movie, but yes. I think their puppeteer counterparts deserve equal accolades.
3: Yeah, we actually made it a point to credit them mm-hmm. in the in the front credits. Normally the puppeteers get credited in the in the technical credits on the roller. And we credit them right next to the actors, and it's because we believe they are actors. We believe animation is not a genre made for film for kids. is a is a is an art. Animation is a medium for art, and you can tackle big questions. You don't have to, you know. And I'm fine with. Uh, I I don't want to give the wrong impression. I'm perfectly fine with animation that is uh, a babysitter. Yeah, sure. That that entertains kids and that's it. But. You know, in the world of uh, cuisine, you don't want to do McNuggets only. You want to also Correct. now and then go and do an interesting Indian meal or a really good chicken tandoori, or you know, <laughs>
0: we have, to have, the we have so, to have the Flintstones. Yes, so uh, other things will mean something.
3: Yes, and I, and I, and I I think that's one of the steps this movie trying to take. We're going to take a very quick break. We'll be right back. This is progress.
0: I'm John Fugles saying this is Progress After Dark. I was so inspired that you co directed this with uh, Mr. Gustafson, yeah. a Fantastic Mr. Fox, Brilliant. which is visually just uh, unlike anything people have yeah. seen. Yeah. W- what is your process when you are co directing an animated feature?
3: You know, I, I developed the screenplay with Patrick and I developed all the basic visuals with uh, my team, m- namely Guy Davis is my my go-to guy. And then Mark came, comes in, and then we have to break it down and, and make sure we can do it. Mark is co-director, co-director, not just directly on animation. We right. made the decisions on storyboarding. We made the decisions on how much of the street we would need to build, etc., uh, etc. Et we really had a very sympathetic relationship. And every day, every day together, we would instruct the actors, the, the animators. We would say, we're going to do this. And every day on the uh, recording booth, we would record the uh, actors together, uh, Cate Blanchett, uh, Ron Perlman, etc. And you know, we would be watching for sort of a blind side of each other. We would say, well, you know, let's try this because we don't we don't have it. Well, so for there's
0: an incredible sequence in this film that's been praised by many, where the cat played by Kate Blanchett leads us yeah. through the, the circus. Monkey, yeah. and boy is it fun seeing you do a second sideshow movie in a row with some of the yes. same actors from yeah. Nightmare Alley, but it's so intricate it puts scorsese to shame this one (laughs) shot through the carnival what is the process in co-directing a shot like that it must have taken weeks to set up
3: yeah that shot that shot you you storyboard from the beginning you pre-plan the set so that it can allow the camera to move there because the sets on stop motion are like Rubik's cubes. You need to move parts away or have trap doors for the animator to pop up and animate the puppet. So we need to pre-plan it. It it took about uh, four weeks of pre-planning and a few days of rehearsal and many days of shoot. I think the shoot, we destroyed, uh, completely destroyed three of the puppets. Of the monkey because the animators subject them to an incredible tense exercise <laughs> by by moving them and and the result is a, but there is an even longer shot there's a very long shot of the cricket dancing yes during the credits yes. that is the longest shot in the whole movie and that was animated in Mexico in Guadalajara in my hometown and it's fully stop motion animation. Fully stop motion. We all the characters are stop motion and. Uh, some of them are really heavy and big puppets, like The Sphinx or Death. It's a really big puppet, and it's hard to move. That
0: closing credits shot is, was a very interesting choice, because it's an incredibly emotional ending to the film. Yeah, yeah. And in a way, it almost seemed like you had to give the audience something light when <sighs> they walk out of the, of the theater.
3: That was exactly the, the idea, but it was also the irony that the cricket during the whole movie is trying to, to sing that song. Huh? And every time he tries to sing it, he gets crushed. And he finally sings it at the end. It's a great song, number one. But number two, we wanted the cricket to earn the right to impart some wisdom. He keeps trying to start the song, but also death and rebirth is a
0: constant theme in this film.
3: And in all my films, yeah. Yes. Uh, Alfonso Guarón says, uh, uh, he says, all your movies, people have to die to be happy. (laughs) Yeah, I guess you're right. Here's the Catholic Uh, thing. But but if you think about it, like... um, the echoes of the father and son stories and all those uh, things, they're on Blade Two, Nomad and his father. They're on Devil's Backbone. Mm-hmm. They're on Pan's Labyrinth. There, I mean, oh, And yeah. this movie belongs perfectly with Pan's Labyrinth and Devil's mm-hmm. Backbone. This movie also belongs
0: perfectly with Pan's Labyrinth or with Kronos in that um, yeah. how you capture the mediocrity of fascism.
3: Yeah. Well, the yes. mediocrity of it.
0: I mean, people will be is. shocked that Mussolini is a character in this film.
3: Yeah, yeah. The the, the thing with fascism is that uh, we, we when we were designing the sets, we were uh, designing based on photographs. I said I don't want to invent a city. I want to construct a city. So we would go to architectural drawings and architectural photographs. And one of the things we discovered is that Mussolini had in his buildings this giant concrete M, a gigantic M. And I said, We are lucky that fascists oh were tacky because <laughs> we can now put it in the building, you know? <laughs> and it is, it is, and ultimately, violence always comes from fear. Always. And I always say, Fear and, and rage make people mirrors, and love make people windows. And uh, when somebody is incomplete and full of rage, um, they project. In compensation, a persona that is impossible, you know, and that that is fascism. and to me, the totalitarian, uniform way of thinking and dictating is very dangerous, and that's why the theme of the film is disobedience well, then let
0: me be presumptuous because I think that this is where the film becomes so political mm-hmm. and where it becomes so personal yes. because I get a lot of you in this. Um, we're always told about Pinocchio has to be a good boy. I think we're always going to be a yeah. good boy, be brave, truthful, and unselfish, as the Blue yeah. Fairy says. Yeah. And here, I think the greatest convention you turn on its head is that no, Pinocchio doesn't have to be a good boy. He has no. to be real and free. And yeah. that is where it becomes not just, I think, your artistic ethos and your spiritual mm-hmm. beliefs mm-hmm. But it's also resistance to fascism itself
3: to everything yeah. I think that uh, I mean life keeps telling you you can or cannot do certain things that your yourself uh, with conscience not not desire not in compulsion by you you feel that life is more than that and and then disobedience is urgent I think that it doesn't matter if it's written or not if you feel that what is taking place is wrong you have to disobey You know and if you're wrong then you can modify your ideas you can come to a personal conclusion but ideology doesn't give you that option ideas do right ideas you can be wrong with an idea but it's an idea you created that you can accommodate reality but ideology doesn't ideology says this is this whether you want it or not
0: but that moral disobedience yeah. that's the crucifixion
3: i mean that, that's, that is that's that the, is, you know rebelling yeah. against
0: rome and the yeah. pharisees yeah.
3: yeah people people forget how disobedient christ was Ooh. you know that's what god that's what yeah. they got him on that's, yeah. what it, that's what they got him and and, and i think uh, the parallels uh very very clearly collodi was uh imbuing pinocchio with parallels uh, that were very catholic we emphasize the nails on his back yes there's a scene where he looks at the crucifix and says why do they love him and not me exactly. uh, obviously he resurrects to save those that he loves he gets crucified in the film yes he does and he even goes the crucifix in the church misses one of its arms and it's the same arm pinocchio is missing at the end of the film when he's, right. tra- when he's trying to save his father. And I think there is a very beautiful metaphor in the film where you start with a father that cannot accept death and you end up with a son that can encompass death and a father that is at peace with yes. death. It's a whole... And then there is a, an almost spiritual quality to the tale that elevates the whole movie. You have been watching a movie and all of a sudden you realize it's about living and dying and being in a state of grace. Because at the end of the day, Pinocchio is in a state of grace. And he transforms the world through that.
0: Exactly. I mean, I think it's the most spiritual thing that I've seen you do. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also love that you tried to remove a lot of the magical elements. Um, yes. Instead of going to an island, yeah. a, a pleasure, pleasure island where, island, where yeah. boys turn into donkeys, they yeah. get sent to... Or a Muslim. cat and a fox ca- that yeah. 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 talk. You've already got the talking cricket. You've got yeah. the magical monkey. That's You've it. got the wood sprite. So yeah. Yeah. here... Instead of a pleasure island, these boys are taken to something else that transforms them into something worse than a, a re-education
3: camp, a yeah. Mussolini yeah. fascist youth camp. Yeah, yeah. And instead of donkeys, they get gas masks. Yeah, yeah. It's brilliant. Yeah, I, I think it was very important uh, for me. There is a moment in the pleasure in the pleasure island when things go wrong and they turn into donkeys, and we took them to the uh, the military camp and. The kids are having fun shooting at each other, throwing grenades, and all of a sudden, the father puts a real gun on the table and says, shoot the puppet. Yeah. And it's a real gun. It's horrifying. And it, it really turns into a horrifying moment. And But I think it's, it's necessary for the film. It's necessary for the character of the kid, the son of the fascist, to tell his father what he can or cannot do and why. You know,
0: but that's one of my favorite departures because yeah. one of the most horrific things about Walt's movie is that when they go to Pleasure Island and, and the the mean boy turns into a donkey and it's horrifying here we're set up to think that Candlewick will be the mean boy. And mm-hmm. instead he becomes the most unlikely of allies.
3: Yes. I, and that is in, if you remember that's in, well, it's in troll hunters for sure. And it's oh, in, yeah. in, in devil's backbone. Yeah. Devil's backbone. The, one of the main stories is two boys that are enemies that become best friends. And that comes from me from, uh, that's blade r- two as well. That That's blade, blade two in a way. Yeah. yeah. And, and, and it comes from, um, and Hellboy too. With the prince, yeah, you're right. You know, he's sort of an anti-hero hero. But I read Mark Twain when I was very young, and I, I love the, the stories of kids that just join together because they are fed up with the world of adults. I think
0: David Bradley's performance as Geppetto is one of the high points of the film. Yes, well, no um, doubt about it. And just heartbreaking. The choice to make Geppetto a grieving, town-drunk, yeah. bereft father um, oh, yes. just completely give something the characters never had mm-hmm. which is context i'm wondering what did becoming a father do for you creatively
3: well first of all uh, when i became a father right around the time of mimic and i could fight with the weinsteins and um, because i was a father i i said i cannot go back and tell my baby <laughs> what is right and wrong if i don't face these bullies myself yes you know so that changed me and then What happened is uh, my father and I had, as you can see from my movies, a very mysterious relationship. And I said very conscientiously, I'm going to do the opposite of my father to raise my kids. And then when your kids turn into their teenage years, they tell you that you're doing exactly what your father did. Of course. Exactly. Doesn't that mean it's working? Well, no. It actually, <laughs> it actually, I made a point to listen to those reviews. <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and you realize that uh, the things that you were wrong, and you can change. You can become a better father. And I thought, Geppetto. It was great that Geppetto becomes a better father.
0: It's almost not just that he becomes a better father. I think what's so moving about it and with people I've spoken to, it's like he realizes he loves this child so much more than he thought he did. Yes. And I think that's what's gonna break a lot of men's hearts here. Yes.
3: He prays for this child, and then he doesn't want it. And that's kind of, well, a point I made when we were writing the screenplays I said, what if you prayed for a miracle, you got it, and you didn't recognize it? Because I, when you're raised Catholic, you, one of the great mysteries is, how the miracles work, and miracles work in a quiet way. Miracles work every day in a quiet way. Sometimes, as a burden. I mean, uh, I remember a priest uh, in Jesuit school saying, saying, "God sends a letter, but doesn't send the dictionary. You gotta figure it out yourself." You know, and I, I think that's that's a key concept the most mysterious book in the bible the most profound book in the bible for me is the book of job Mm -hmm. and the book of job is where do grace take us if not if it doesn't take us out of tribulation yeah what is the worth of grace if we are uh, cursed with boils and the loss of a family and you know and then the scale of the cosmos comes in the voice of god and says who are you to ask me this. Where were you when I created the world, you know? And it is that, it is, the the film has that. The film has Geppetto not recognizing that miracle and being faced with the mystery of death and losing a child and then facing the simplicity of uh, accepting an imperfect child and accepting death, which I know it sounds uh, very Mexican perhaps, but accepting death is accepting life. If a life never ends, it never started. It's very simple. Philosophically, what has no end never starts. And and that those are questions that are not answered, but they are essayed in the movie. I don't think there are an- answers. They're essays. Yeah, You essay a possible route to find a meaning. That's all.
0: That's why it's a film that makes you feel rather than reciting answers. Yes. I have to praise Cabinet of Curiosities as well. Oh, thank you you know, over 30 years, I've taken my wife to many horror films. Mm-hmm. Episode three, The Autopsy, yes. is the first time my wife has had to leave the room yes. in anything I made her watch. Can and I, I say something? For that. My wife
3: almost left the room. Um, <laughs> also she I had to
0: stand up and turn my back to the TV. <laughs> yeah. And I love F. Marie Abraham. Episode, yeah. th- just, I mean, you that,
3: really did it. That episode, show. that episode, uh, came from a story that uh, I I read in the 80s or 90s, and and everybody loved it in the horror community, but everybody said it's unadaptable. You cannot adapt it. And uh, David did a fantastic job adapting it and directing it. Yes. But F. Murray. Yeah. He's... He's yeah, 83 and doing that. 83. And, and each of those episodes, uh, you know, we, we have a, like, it was like a sampler of chocolates. You have fun <laughs> ones, you have light ones, you have heavy ones. The final episode, the murmuring, the next to final episode, the murmuring is fantastic. But you seem to be having so much fun playing yeah. Hitchcock and Rod Serling. Well, Hitchcock only on the pant size. <laughs> I mean, I, that's voluntary. <laughs> I, was, I was Rod Serling with an accent, but, <laughs> but and a lot less good enunciation.
0: One final question, and I thank you for your generosity of time. A lot of controversy this week about sight and sound and the rankings yeah, changing. Yeah. And I'm a, I'm a fan of the debate. I think the debate's yeah. very, very healthy. But I was... I like lists.
3: I do too. I like, and, like and lists. And there's no right or wrong look. The exercise... To limit, I I would say, I I would have difficulty saying what are the hundred best comedies, Mm -hmm. the hundred best horror, the hundred best uh, thrillers, much less a hundred best movies. You cannot cram cinema in just a hundred. The list is there to provoke conversation. That's it. So in that is an incredibly successful list. I actually enjoyed it. I love it. Yeah. I think that. Anything that makes film conversation come alive exactly. again, really alive. <laughs> Paul Schrader's fantastic. mad. I mean, yeah, oh, no, but, I like it.
0: yeah. Because I mean, when I went to film school, you know, it was all about what's the director trying to say. In our media culture, it's all about how much did it gross the opening weekend. So yeah, I think, or,
3: or how popular it is, or how this. Listen, uh, a film to me uh, is as sacred and as personal as religion. Uh, So if you make a list of the top three religions ever, you're gonna have a lot of people angry. It's the same thing. You're gonna, you're gonna, you know, if you're a Buddhist and the list favors something not Buddhist, you're not gonna be a happy camper. That's why I think I am a syncretic believer of cinema. (laughs) I I think there is a, a cinema for everyone as long as you can articulate why the list is good well
0: then let me close with your list because your sight and sound list has yeah, been acclaimed he's, for he's years
3: 36. von stroheim you know you got
0: greed you got freaks frankenstein eight and yeah, a half yeah. has your list Evolved. Does your list evolve? Just as we saw Sight and Sound's yeah, favorite, yeah, yeah. Do, do you have films that don't mean as much to you now as they did in your 20s? Oh, of course. Or films that mean much more no. with the man you are
3: now? No, of course. Listen, when I was in my 20s, I had bell-bottom pants and platform shoes. And, and I, 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 wore a, I wore a jeans jacket and a jeans cap. So I can't, and I was dancing the hustle. So you, 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 need, you need to change. Sure. Like I still,
0: my favorite films from my 20s are still my favorite films. I mean, I can still watch Wings of Desire, you know, once a week. Uh, and, I understand. You know, but have any of the films that you cherish then yes. meant less to you as you've aged? Or, or Never,
3: rarely less. Rarely less. Very often more. But, you know, what I find is, because when you watch a movie again, you realize you're watching a new movie. You know, every time you watch a movie, yes. you're, you're watching a new movie because you see it through the optics of yourself. Yes. Art is self. the connection you have with a piece of art is a connection you have not with the artist really, but with yourself. So when you evolve and you watch a, a film again, you find it either juvenile because you were juvenile when you liked it yeah. or you find it more profound because you were not able to see it before. But the movie stays the same.
0: It's true of music and literature and plays. Every every
3: art. All art waits for you to make it good. It's not a a matter of if, but of when.
0: Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio is in theaters now. It should be seen in a theater. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank
4: you. We'll be right back. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you.
0: I'm very excited to talk about this next book. It requires a moment of setup. As you know, we're in a time of seemingly never ending political and economic and social and ecological and poverty related crises. And they're all interrelated and they're all not being addressed by the modern status quo. The 20 wealthiest Americans own more than the bottom half of the population. It's not sustainable, it's not conservative, it's not sane. Uh, As of 2017, 69 of the 100 largest economic actors in the world were corporations. 69 were corporations, only 31 were nations. We haven't seen this level of inequality since the eve of the Great Depression. Oligarchy is a threat to the American experiment, and there's a long history of the people who own this country showing that they are not going to take a smaller piece of an expanding pie when they can get a bigger piece of a shrinking pie. But a brilliant new book by two acclaimed professors argues the Constitution itself imposes a duty on the U.S. government to fight oligarchy and ensure that wealth is more broadly shared and it will blow your mind. Joseph Fishkin is professor of law at University of California, L.A. He got a doctorate in philosophy and politics from Oxford University where he was a Fulbright scholar. You may have read him in The Washington Post, The New York Times or The New Yorker. Professor William Forbath holds the Lloyd M. Benston Chair in Law and is Associate Dean for Research at the University of Texas in Austin School of Law. He's also a professor of history at UT. He writes on legal and constitutional issues for the New York Times and the nation. Their new book, The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. It's an essential work that shows fighting and preventing oligarchy isn't some radical new idea Bernie Sanders cooked up. From the Jacksonians who fought against privileges for the powerful few, to the Republicans who opposed slavery, to the Democrats who fought for the New Deal. It's always been a struggle that's been at the center of an incredible American tradition of political and constitutional thought. What a pleasure to welcome Professor Joseph Fishkin and Professor William Horbath to XM. Hello, gentlemen.
5: Thank you. Thanks for that terrific intro. That was lovely. Good to be well,
2: here.
0: Thank you. And thank you both for, for staying up so late and joining us. Uh, it's really a pleasure. Your book is pretty mind-blowing. And it's one of those books where I'm like, oh, I'm going to buy a copy of this for so many smart, moral people I know for the holidays. And it's the sort of book that I wish every, every politician in a certain political party could own. But, you know, I always say the history of this country has never been conservative versus liberal. It's always been aristocracy versus democracy. And I think we're so used now in our media culture, seeing conservatives act like the constitution is theirs to wield, to protect concentrated economic power. And I find a lot of people in the media and a lot of liberals might be kind of neutral on this issue and essentially giving the right discretion to choose what the policy is going to be. I'd like to begin by asking you both, what does the constitution really have to say about economic power. And how do the two of you define this nefarious word oligarchy?
2: Well, for light for a a light opener, handing things back and forth. Um, We we define oligarchy very simply as um, a state of affairs when too much political and economic power is concentrated in too few hands. And we define oligarchy as a constant peril for a, a free, democratic and Republican form of government, because the very freedoms right, that undergird enterprise and wealth accumulation right, also create the conditions you know, for those who right, have too much wealth to convert that wealth into political power. And that's why the danger of oligarchy right, was on the minds of perfectly middle of the road cautious revolutionaries like a John Adams. Right. right. It wasn't only the province of the Tom Paines and the Sam Adams, the radicals of the American Revolution. It was always also on the minds of the much you know stodgier um revolutionaries uh, as well and let me make sure I, I i don't lose the thread of your your question that's what oligarchy is we can sort of <laughs> drill down deeper into more technical definitions but that's a good working definition and um the second question is what does the constitution have to say about it
0: yeah The Constitution, (laughs) and
2: here here I'll I'll, I'll pass it on to to Joey after just sort of setting it up. The Constitution addresses, above all in its text, the peril of of, of a titled aristocracy. So the framers, everyone in the revolutionary movement in the 18th century wanted to topple aristocracy that was a defining feature of those who decided to join in the fight for independence. Already in the very first constitutions the country saw, the state constitutions um, that came before the big federal constitution, they had in the texts themselves of those state constitutions this peril I I just sketched, that it wasn't enough only to avert a title, legal aristocracy, Mm -hmm. that this problem of securing a broad distribution of wealth in order to undergird the independence of a citizenry who is going to be self-governing was in the text of all the early or many of the early state constitutions. Exactly. I'll let Joey take this.
5: Sure. Yeah. Well, so I'll just throw in, you know, this is why Thomas Jefferson in Virginia took the view that we can't invent enough devices to divide land. He didn't want big landed estates with wealthy aristocrats lording it over everyone else. He wanted lots of small individual landowners because you know at that time land was sort of how you produced uh wealth and so land today we might say well what about education actually thomas jefferson thought of that too that you needed a wide distribution of both productive assets and also education and opportunity if you were going to have the kind of political economy the kind of setup of your economics and politics that was conducive to a republic right. rather than right. having it slide into control by the few and you know when when you ask sort of what does the constitution have to say about it i think part of what we are about in this book is we're arguing that for most of american history people made constitutional arguments People on all sides of the great debates through the 19th century and into the early 20th made arguments about what the Constitution meant that were connected to these questions of political economy. What kind of distribution of wealth in society do we think is necessary for the Republic to survive mm-hmm. that the Constitution mm-hmm. contemplates? Those kinds of arguments, you know, do we think as, as the sort of right-wing arguments then and now, you know, late 19th century arguments sound quite familiar today that actually what the constitution guarantees is libertarian freedoms. You know, those mm-hmm. arguments mm-hmm. were around and they have a long pedigree, but so too do arguments that you're not going to keep your republic if you have too much concentrated wealth, if you lose your middle class That's and, right. in That's re- right. and in reconstruction, the reconstruction republicans who really rewrote the constitution in a in a monumentally important way for our story and for the american experiment uh they argued that as well you needed it to be a racially inclusive exactly. middle class and mm-hmm. not just you know white guys so those three ideas together form a kind of tradition that we trace in the book through from the founding through really the new deal and it's a set of arguments that had various opponents, you know, there were constitutional arguments pro-slavery, there were constitutional arguments pro, you know, big business and against, mm-hmm. the, against the redistribution of, of wealth and against unions. But there were also constitutional arguments for uh, unions and for tax, income taxes and all of the things that helped build a more egalitarian society in the 20th century.
0: Brilliant, and that really is the theme for the whole book and What struck me was obviously we 're taught how the founders didn 't want to have an aristocracy with dukes and entitled nobility. Um, they put a clause in prohibiting titles of nobility in their new American experiment, but of course, the founders could not have predicted that these aristocracies would evolve into these individuals with incredibly concentrated wealth and and isn 't it also fair to say that these founders were in fact they were the oligarchs of their day they were white landowning men who thought only white landowning men should have a say in this democracy
2: that's a good question i'm glad you put it on the table because it's it's important to to put on the table some of the you know the the totally you know valid skepticism how could Fishkin and Forbath be saying that this constitution is a charter for uh, egalitarianism. Oh, and that's not my, is,
0: that's not that, 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 but that is not my point just so you know, because I think you nail the argument. This is just well, my dumb well, question from I'm, the guy I'm, in the front row. We're just
2: unfolding it. I'm, I'm not right. feeling the least bit defensive. I'm grateful for the question. Quite the contrary. Right. I'm grateful for it. And the, the answer has, you know, a couple of parts. The first is, you know, ours is not a cherry picking We're looking for our friends in the past and and pretending that's all the past was, you know, we step up to the fact that two of the three core principles of this tradition, whose sort of long story we trace, were there, you know, robustly from the start. The one that says you've got to broadly disperse wealth and you've got to hem it, the dangers of concentrated wealth. Um, and they saw that from the beginning, John. They saw the, the, the sort of Madison Jefferson, the Jeffersonians, the first mass political party that comes into being in the 1790s and 1800 election, already saw how their foes, the Federalists, led by the kind of genius of Alexander Hamilton, were creating a national bank that would or threatened to create, and Hamilton saw this in mind, a money to lead at the center of power. Mm-hmm. As a way of, in Hamilton's view, stabilizing the republic and making it more like Britain. And Hamilton had some good arguments about the need for a stable, strong currency. But Hamilton was unflinching about wanting to create a financial and political elite. And the Jeffersonians mobilized against it. And they were able to draw on the rival meanings that had already right, crystallized around core principles like liberty, equal yes. rights, right? States as opposed to national power. And they built Mm -hmm. up arguments, right? That relied on those kinds of textual provisions and a set of ideas about the kind of economy we needed. No one disputed that we needed a certain kind of economy. The question was what kind of economy? But all of them were willing in one measure or another, by and large, most all of them were willing to accommodate slavery. That was a, a grotesque sin that brought the whole structure crashing down and what's striking is how in the rebuilding of what lincoln's republican party envisioned as a sort of new birth of freedom they also drew on this older set of principles but expanded it in their you know in their imagined
0: reconstruction
5: to include black people yeah
0: professor fishkin do you want to jump in
5: Sure. I mean, I think I'll just add that there's a through line. There's several through lines here from the old sort of early nineteenth century story to uh where this tradition ends up. Um, but I think one of the one of the important ones is you saw the Jacksonians arguing that we can't have too much concentrated national power because you know, this sort of Hamiltonian vision is going to be an oligarchy of basically the wealthy New York merchant commercial interests, and they're going to lord it over the rest of us. That idea gets sort of transmuted and made much deeper and more central even to the American constitutional tradition when the Reconstruction Republicans say, you know what, this is the problem in the South. It's not just that slavery is completely an unjust and monstrous system. It's also that it's creating an oligarchy. These slaveholders are these sort of powerful lords lording it over everyone else who, because of their economic power, have too much political power. And we need to uproot the whole system, the whole political economy, the whole sort of way of of running things of the South if we want to build the kind of democratic society that that actually was what the Jacksonians in an, in their racist way wanted among white people. So the, so what the Republicans did, of you know, take this vision and and realize how it could be extended, what you'd have to do to build the foundations of a multiracial, democracy and what they thought what they saw what the radical republicans in particular saw was that that was going to require redistributing the land from the plantation owners to the formerly enslaved people it was going to require building black schools throughout the south you know they had a vision of how economically as well as politically you're going to empower exactly the freedmen and i think that's so important today when when you know There's a version of the Reconstruction amendments today in the hands of conservative Supreme Court justices, where all that it means is, you know, you can't take race into account. You can't treat people differently on the basis of race. And so you can't have affirmative action or something like that. That's their vision. The actual vision of the Reconstruction Republicans was much different than that. It was this deeply economically sort of rich idea that you needed to use the power of government to help the formerly enslaved people, not just to get their political rights, but also to get full economic citizenship because the two are inextricable. So I think that's pretty important to recover.
0: Well, and also, as you point out in the book, I mean, It was the radical abolitionists, the Republicans, who brought up uh, and pointed the finger at this aristocracy of slavery because it hurt poor white people as well as it hurt black people. And it pretty much gave them economic dominance for disproportionate political power nationwide. I mean, they really went after it all the way to... The need to redistribute wealth to former slaves and their descendants. I mean, it's so inspiring seeing how these arguments were being made such a long time ago. But since you both mentioned Andrew Jackson, I'd love to ask you about that, because I think it's a great example of how you were saying before, um, Professor Forbath. It's really a, a story of progress and evolution. All of these actors that fought for these causes had their own shortcomings, but they do seem to keep getting better. I mean, you identify the Jacksonians. Um, as the first modern mass political party. And you talk about how Andrew Jackson really was focused on the realities of class divisions and the incompatibility of political democracy and economic oligarchy. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with the great Sir Jonathan Price. We'll be right back after this.
1: Welcome to Fail Better, David Duchovny's new podcast with Lemonada Media. On Fail Better, David, who has experienced both low- and high-profile failures throughout his life, explores the vast world of failure
0: welcome back what was it about the jacksonian democrats and their war on the second bank of the u.s that shows how this movement was happening from the beginnings of the republic
2: i'm gonna have to step away a little bit from a sort of the notion of a kind of slow halting but you know but ever progressing story
0: okay Good.
2: The shit didn't only got get better, it also got worse. <laughs> oh absolutely. Um, Listen, and, I'll blame Andrew and, Jackson and, and, all day and, for <laughs> and, and, and and Andrew Jackson, you know, was you know worse. You know, his predecessors were bad enough in respect of native Native Americans, and bad enough in their in their active or at least you know condoning towards slavery. So so Jackson was this like like many sort of key figures in, Amer- in the American past, you know, was this kind of tragic entanglement of a very robust egalitarian vision for for the white man and an open avowal that that kind of broad and and rich conception of freedom, not just freedom from government, but a government which above all, they thought at the state and local level would act vigorously to thwart, you know, sort of big corporations, yeah. often in the name of, of, of an entrepreneurial elite, but a local one. And right. in the process, also open space politically, economically, socially for, you know, a kind of sort of a, an independent, Sort of working man, including in the cities, the Jacksonians. So the Jacksonians had much that was noble. Yeah. Um, they had a fairly crackpot set of ideas about economics. And so what we're here to say is they thought that all these economic arrangements and things like banking that we've utterly forgotten are constitutional matters, matters mm-hmm. of political equality and not just economic well being. They saw those connections. They made them vivid. Right. And they mobilized one thing that you can sort of link. You know, it was no accident that Roosevelt liked to invoke Jackson because both of them basically said, you know, the economic royalists hate me. I welcome their hatred. Right. They were unafraid of raw class politics and a certain kind of measure of of class politics is plainly something that, you know, that is necessary in this country in order to sort of create the kind of robust majorities to enact today's equivalent of an inclusive but active government. And the turn from the Jacksonians to Roosevelt's day, if I can just leap ahead we can come back to Jackson. But the turn was in this fashion. We've seen the rise said the New Deal Democrats and before them, the progressives of these huge nation spanning corporations. So our old Democratic capital D Democratic parties, embrace of, right, a limited national government and much power remaining in states and townships cannot serve ordinary working Americans in the face of these jumbo corporations. Their national scope so must governmental power be broad enough to bring them to heel so that right that's why the progressives and roosevelt would say we're pursuing these jeffersonian and jacksonian ends through hamiltonian means
5: Mm. it
2: was a you know it was a twist in the need for you know in the service of this long tradition of broad middle class anti-oligarchy wide distribution of wealth and political power but we need a strong national government to measure up to the strength of big corporations. And it's all a matter of constitutional duty. And I just want to leave your listeners also with this notion that we hear again and again, we take it for granted, even us liberals and progressives, that the Constitution is a set of limits and it's, you know, and it's above all interpreted and applied and enforced by the courts. But you look at everything we've said about these different moments and this tradition It's the work of legislatures, and it's a set of constitutional duties, not limitations. So the Constitution in this tradition is something that we, the people, and our representatives are working out over time and arguing Mm -hmm. about in the polity. It's not a set of limits that sit outside the polity and is enforced by judges.
0: Lest it come off like I'm defending Andrew Jackson too much, I actually think you nail the contradictions in the book because, yes, they they were fighting for special privileges, uh, fighting against special privileges for the rich and powerful, uh, fighting these special privileges for just the few because they, and they did focus on building a a middle class. But again, this was a middle class that did not include women or black Americans or native people. And so it was Roosevelt himself, actually, who said that the banks had controlled our government since the days of Jackson. Professor Fishkin, do you want to jump in on Andrew Jackson?
5: Oh, sure. Well, we could, I mean, we could, we could spend all night, but but I'll just underscore this idea that Professor Forbath was bringing up at the end, uh, which was that another idea that you start to see even in the Jacksonian era and on both sides and in the fights between the Jacksonians and their Whig opponents, you do start to see this this idea that the Constitution impels legislators to act. And the place to argue about the Constitution is in politics. So the most famous and important constitutional arguments from that era are in things like Jackson's veto of the bank that you alluded to earlier, that's not a court decision, you know? That's an argument in politics about why legislators or presidents need to do what they're going to do. And that idea, I think, is really the perhaps the most essential thing that we hope that progressives today will pick up from this book, that for most of our history, progressives, and not just conservatives, saw the constitution as something that we could fight about the meaning of through politics yes and yes. you know that's something that liberals and we can we can pick up this thread now or later liberals kind of learned in the middle 20th century to stop doing that they learned to love the court and judicial supremacy but given where the court has taken us it's time to recover some older ways of thinking about the constitution
0: well yes and Agreed, because in between Andrew Jackson and Roosevelt, of course, you have the Gilded Age populists who were trying to break up monopolies and trying to regulate corporations and tax the rich. And their argument, as you point out, was that the Constitution... Charges Congress with the duty to curb concentrated economic power So the arguments have been there all throughout our history and it sort of seems like we're in a gaslit generation Where citizens united is accepted as gospel by so many and just the thinking that this is how it's always been I mean this book is one of the greatest I've read in terms of how current events are not current and these arguments have been existing and raging for a long time Even though they don't get a lot of airplay I'm curious At a time when ideas like this don't get discussed in corporate media too much, what is giving the two of you hope and optimism?
5: Well, I have a a strange start to this answer, which is, you know, when we started working on this book, I think it would not have gotten the reception that by the time we've now published it, it's kind of found its moment and is really getting, you know, attention. I think part of the reason is the Supreme Court. The current court is so far to the right in such a kind of obvious and political way, and particularly on these questions of political economy, but not only, that it's causing a lot of Americans on the sort of broad left half of the political spectrum to say, wait a minute, you know, we used to say, like, it's very important to respect the court and the court gets to decide what the Constitution means and follow precedent and stare decisis is really important in all of this. But now, I mean, what are we defending when we're defending the court? And so, to me, the fact that this court has gone as far as it has, not only Citizens United, not only Shelby County guiding the Voting Rights Act and Brnovich, uh, mm-hmm. these are two cases that have destroyed different parts of the Voting Rights Act, but also most importantly, Dobbs, the case overturning Roe v. Wade, I feel like this has finally caused large numbers of millions of Americans to pay attention to the fact that we have a court that's not really acting as an umpire, but uh, is, is playing a major political role in our system. And that, I think, it gives me some hope that there's room in the future for a progressive, uh, politics against the court, which is what we'll need. Um, yes, and yes. I think there's a kind of very slow I just I have this this sense of like almost turning a battleship, you know, like it's a very slow process. So many different actors across liberal and progressive politics need to recognize that it's time for this change to happen. But it's starting to, you know, it's not a coincidence that you see. Energy around topics like reforming the court, you know, we have some ideas about that. I think there's a there's the potential for a politics like FDR's politics, which was a politics where we said look, you know, the court has set itself up and it has again today the way it did a century ago as the defender of concentrated wealth and elite political power and We need a mass politics of democracy fighting against that. And that means we need a Congress that's willing to legislate in ways that are at odds with the court and challenge the court. So anyway, I have some hope. In a way, it's kind of a dark reason to have hope, but but basically because things are so bad on the judicial front. I think that might provide an opening for people to say, well, wait a minute, you know, what what actually can we say about the constitution that's not just following what the court says? We think it's I mean, what in order
2: for for these this story about who we are as a nation, what our project is as a constitutional democracy, right? The story we think equips liberals and progressives and essentially for now the Democratic Party, but also third party movements, the labor movement, which is reawakening, which is one of my, you know, sources of my greatest hope. It equips them with a strong, clear narrative about who we are. And then there's also the hard work of building up the kinds of programs at the state and national level that sort of reinvigorate, ordinary American's confidence that government can do such things as this. Because it's also been the case that the the project of laissez-faire or the rebirth of laissez-faire and that vision that the market is the engine of all good things and the job creators, you know, hmm. reside at the top of corporations. It's been the victory of that and the sort of unraveling of an older understanding that economics is always a set of political choices and not about the genius of markets as such as much as we need markets that you know that can be brought along as well so that we rebuild americans confidence in government by also having a story to tell that counters the one that says all these things you want to do they're they're foreign imports and they're unconstitutional
0: and thank you for that. Honestly, this book blew my mind. It is The Anti-Oligarchy Constitution, Reconstructing the Economic Foundations of American Democracy. It is a book that reminds you the Constitution is a tool for justice and democracy and against concentrated wealth. Uh, Professor Joseph Fishkin, Professor William Forbath, this book blew my mind. Thank you both so much for joining us on serious Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Please come back anytime. I could talk about this for days.